Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from a newly refurbished podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today once again, our dear friend, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and three-time champion of Rock and Roll Jeopardy. Hello and welcome back, Mark McGrath. Hey, hey, Michael Tully. Always a pleasure, my friend. Always. Um, We meet with somewhat uh, 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 heavy hearts. Rock and Roll has lost a legend recently. And Mm -hmm. um, based on your social media, I I could not recall you having talked about your um, professional or, or personal interactions with Meatloaf, but I gather you at least met the man. Yeah, you know, I had the, uh, I was always a fan, uh, sure. always thought he's one of a kind, unique, you know, whether you liked him or not, you were definitely, uh, liked his music or not, he was doing something different, much like when you talk about Queen. You know, you don't hear a lot of people go, well, they sound like Meatloaf, and or, you know, the, it, it, it was just one of a kind, you mm-hmm. know, and so the drama he added that I was old enough to remember when he was so big in the 70s. It was just like this sort of anomaly, this gigantic, uh, bare, charismatic uh, person with this operatic voice and a flair for drama. I mean, he came up in the uh, the hair uh, play. That was his, like, that's how he kind of got his uh, Broad- feet on the, the ground, the, got the his record deal. Bro- Broadway, theater, yeah, sorry, musical yeah, Broadway. theater, hair. Yeah, right. That, that's right. Yeah, he, musical theater, Broadway was his background. Uh, and then some genius at AR had the idea of getting together with uh, Jim Steinman, who wrote all the songs, put them together with Meatloaf, and said, let's give it a shot. Turned out to be Bad of the Hell, one of the biggest records of all time. So I was a huge fan, totally to begin with. Um, and I was on Celebrity Apprentice. There you go. And Meatloaf was on there. And when you do these reality shows, especially shows like that, Celebrity Apprentice, uh, Big Brother, they're very intense and very involved. I mean, you really get to know the people. And Meatloaf came up to me the first night. And he goes, I've been surveying the competition. He goes, I think you're one of my biggest co- competitors. And I love the guy right there. And a, a little side note, an old, you know, personal note, my dad had passed away a couple months before uh, I started filming uh, Celebrity Apprentice. And, you know, I just had these two little babies at home and I was just kind of feeling, I had just weird emotions and all that. I think maternal, uh, uh, Meatloaf, paternal, his paternal instincts kicked in and he kind of like took me under his wing. And it was a very sweet, sweet thing. And I became very close to the man. Now, a lot of people know Meatloaf from the big fight we got in, he got in with Gary Busey. And it's, it's, yes, it's, it's voted as one of the top 10 reality moments of all time because he literally had a fucking meltdown with, uh, with, because of Gary Busey. And if anybody's been in Gary Busey's presence, we love Gary Busey. But he's like a three-year-old child after a while. There's only so many point-break references you can do before you lose your mind and you spend eight hours with the man. And Meatloaf has said to me, he goes, Mark, I'm going to lose my mind in Gary if he does one more thing. And this is all behind the scenes. He didn't see it. And then he stole meat. He stole meat's paint. He lost his mind and thus provided one of the greatest moments in TV. But after Celebrity Apprentice, you know, I got to know the man. Um, and he became a friend, you know. We would hit, hit each other up with Texas every now and then. I got a text from him about three or four months ago saying, you know, look, I've moved to Nashville. Next time you roll through, say hello. And uh, 
he was just seemed really healthy. And unfortunately, he was uh, took a stance on COVID that eventually killed him. And I know his daughter wrote a uh, a beautiful tribute the other day and said, you know, Meatloaf was willing to die on that hill. I refuse to be vaccinated, and if I die, I die. Yeah, he said as much. His, his daughter, I know you had two. Are you, are you talking about Pearl? No, I, the other. The other. The okay, other, I don't know uh, the other one. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I never met her either. Pearl, I know. Yeah. Pearl was, is a musician in her own right. She's yes. married to Scott Ian from Anthrax. That's right. She's very lovely. Uh, and she's a little more public than uh, his other daughter, who I'd never met. But she, the other daughter, not Pearl, wrote this beautiful tribute to her dad and said he was willing to die on that hill. And knowing Meat Love, we call him Meat, like I do, um, he was very committed to his stances and his beliefs. You know, and that's either you love them or not for that. You know, he had, a, he had an opinion about everything. And he was just a gentle soul. So I was, I was grateful to know him. And, uh, you know, rest of the soul, we're losing all these legacy artists. We're losing them all. And no one's coming behind them. But just a bunch of sugar rays, man. So good luck for <laughs> good luck for the, the live entertainment uh, business. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, John, and, and I had forgotten Jim Steinman passed away, I think, somewhat late last year. Definitely within That's the right. last 12 months. It's, it's just such a remarkable legacy that they left musically if you want to draw up the blueprint for how to be a pop star and sure it was pre-MTV and that and that helped although I think his physicality and his appearance in a backward sort of way helped him the fact that he had this Quasimodo thing with kind of Quasimodo mixed with uh, Cyrano the Roxanne Steve yeah. Martin thing of where this this person who looked like a, a, a he like he could play you know the beast in a production of Beauty and the Beast actually was able to express a certain sort of tenderness that most men still wouldn't be comfortable expressing. And the fact that he looked like he'd be at home on the back of a motorcycle kind of gave him permission to that. Call it the Aaron Neville, the Aaron Neville rule. I, I think that's completely accurate. And, you know, he was certainly not a central casting when you look at a rock and roll front man in the seventies, yeah. but that also made him unique. You know, he's this 300 pound man that was very charismatic, very energetic. Yeah. I mean, meatloaf, I mean, it used to scare me to death the last couple, 10, 12 years I knew him. I mean, there was a couple of times I'd see T uh, on TMZ, Meatloaf passes away from exhaustion on stage because the man gave everything he got. And he, he told me once, he goes, I don't care if I die on stage. I want to die. You know, he, it was be the last dramatic moment. He was all about drama and yeah. theater and charisma and, 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 and you know, and vote. It was just, you know, he was one of a kind, man. And I know that that, that thing gets that gets thrown away, uh, that cliche gets thrown around a lot, especially with the one-of-a-kind people who have passed away recently. Bob Saget, you know, he was one-of-a-kind. And, and and so, you know, I, I, I miss the guy. I miss him as a friend. I miss him uh, as a performer. Yeah, yeah, w w well said. I should. I don't know if I've ever listened to Bad Out of Hell top to bottom. Of course, everybody's yeah, you know, I, sh I should give that a spin. It's a trying listen. I'm, sure. I'm going to be honest with you. Right. I didn't, I, I, I wasn't, you know, I was a fan of the hits and all that. I love meat. When I was young, meatloaf to me was this gigantic guy. And it was just, you know, he was almost like a superhero to me, you know? Mm, right. And then I took a long break from meatloaf, like a lot of people did. Sure. And then when he came back in the early nineties with I'll do anything love was probably as unlikely for that record being big as bad of the hell one was. Absolutely. That one of the biggest records of the year. You know? Absolutely. You know what? Cause because I forget the timing, everything in music, we keep saying it, but we keep saying it because it's true, is really, it's like the BC and AD is Nirvana's Nevermind. Had he managed to come back in 89, it wouldn't have been that surprising. But in a, in, in a, in a, in a real-world reality bites, Ben Stiller, Janine Garofalo, Starbucks, yes. Nirvana kind of world, for him to wait until then to do it,
And I mean, not to, to just sound like the old stuff, literally recording songs that were written six months after the old stuff. It really, right. it really was the sequel to the album 15 years too late. I mean, he invented the Chinese democracy way before the Chinese democracy <laughs> and, and with, with zero concessions for what was going on in as out of place as it was in 77, it was twice as out of place in 91 or 92 or 93, whenever that was. And it completely rock and roll dreams come true. He had a hit with a song and it was not tongue in cheek. That's what it was no. actually about. Zero irony yeah. in the world of irony he was living in. Yeah. So it was such the, yeah, you know, he just he was like breath of fresh air with all the staring at my converse, turn the Gibsons up to 10. Then you got this guy yeah. who hadn't heard that music changed and <laughs> came back exactly with the same team, same format, and even called it bad out of hell too. Yeah. He was that he, you know, you talk about ACDC found a formula. Meatloaf found his formula and he rode that thing, you know, and uh, to uh you know, up to the uh, the heavens. That's right. That's right. So last time you and I spoke, we were looking at new releases from the end of 1981. And by the by, we listened to Young Turks from Rod Stewart, which I think some listeners have agreed. Um, I think we all agree bears a striking similarity to um, the, um, why can't I think of the, the, the weekend? Uh, Blinding Lights. Blinding Lights, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I don't really know where you draw the line on, on, on plagiarism a lot of the times. I don't, if I was a judge there, I don't know that I could convict him of plagiarism. It just seems really obviously, um, it's a hell of a coincidence if it wasn't an inspiration. And that, that made me realize that we, we have talked a couple times in the past about songs that may have been borrowed to some extent or another, or songs that just bear a striking similarity to one another. And I thought it might be fun to take a look at another batch of those. And yeah, this time around, uh, a couple times, I am, I, you know what he'll all die on? Mariah Carey stole uh, We Belong Together from Jody Watley. That is not, that to me is a, is a stone cold fact. A lot of these other ones are just more about, hey, did you ever notice this thing is kind of similar to this thing? And, and hey, if you want to say that makes it stolen, in some cases, I wouldn't disagree with you. To well, get, I think what changed the game, and I'm sorry, interrupt please, you, please, please. To, to kind of get back to the Young Turks equation, I think Young Turks, uh, Blinding Lights by the Weekend sounds way more like Young Turks than... Um, Blurred Line sounds yeah. like uh, I Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye. Whatever the song was, I just escaped my name And, right and for, people, for people who don't know, that was a really, really, really potentially um, transformative legal case. Not that the suit was filed, but that they won. The judge essentially said, you you are impersonating the vibe of... It's as, went, yeah. it's as if... That's Steve, what's dangerous. It's as if Steve like, Martin had sued Kevin Klein for acting like Steve Martin in A Fish yeah. Called Wanda. <laughs> Is so right. So it's never been done before where inspired by yeah. was grounds for not only a lawsuit, but mm -hmm. to win. Yeah. And when you had blurring lines, you're talking millions and millions of dollars. So, you know, I think Young Turks just sounds way more like blinding lights than that even does, you yeah. know? So I, did you did you pick that up by yourself? Tell I did. Me, or did someone tell you about the no. about the similarity? I'm like Rain Man for this kind of stuff. Like uh, yeah. the, the new Adele song has three seconds that are stolen from the pre-chorus of Heaven by Brian Adams. Like I just I I I don't have just that. Know it. I don't have that yeah. audio lined up. It's 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 a fact. Like I just I catch these things. I'm I'm this bizarre like counting toothpicks on the floor savant with stolen music sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you're a fan of music, so you, and your recall is so great, so you know where it comes from. But I tell you, I mean, I used to say in things like, look, this lyrical thing from a Sugar Ray song was inspired by this because yeah. every other artist I know has talked about it. But when inspired by now is grounds for legal suits, I'm trying to scrub the internet of yeah. everything I've ever done. You're inspiration you know? <laughs> free. You're like Prince. It just comes straight yeah, from your good. soul. I am a unicorn like Meatloaf and Prince, man. You know what I mean? So uh, to get the ball rolling, we had some conversation along these lines a while back, and I think more than one listener pointed out to me, we've talked about Green Day to me are sort of the the Led Zeppelin of punk rock, where they've for sure written 10 or 20 totally memorable songs all by themselves. And then there's like 10 more that I can pretty directly link to to other stuff. And I don't know what you do with the band's legacy when that is is the case. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think we talked about this before. When there's a Green Day or when there's a band with a plethora of material they've written on their own, you almost give them, a, you know, it's okay. Green Day was inspired by the Kings or whatever it was. It's it's okay because they're Green Day, you know? And I think they're where their influence is on their sleeves. So I guess, Tully, mm-hmm. if you've written a body of work on your own that's considered original, but then you step into that inspired by is that grounds for a lawsuit well unless you're like a one-hit wonder they came out yeah you know and i don't want to call robin thick a one-hit wonder i don't think he really is but name one more song than blurred lines right now you know what i mean which is interesting to me and and robin thick's extremely talented writes his own stuff yeah. he's written a lot of stuff for other people he too. has he has so, an, an alan thick son to boot that's right uh, there you go well look just it doesn't matter your track record the, the way that i think of you as an art like i don't some people, you say Led Zeppelin, and they just, they can't help it. It's like Danzig, hey, did you see that time he got knocked out? Led Zeppelin stole all their shit from all blue guy, blues guys, you know that? And it's like, I don't think they stole the immigrant song from Sweet Willie Dixon. I really don't think that they, I really don't think that they did. But you can obviously point out other instances. I mean, there's two levels of it with Zeppelin. One is where they were literally taking things and not crediting them and not even changing the titles. And then there's the instances where it's more like conventional plagiarism. You just, to me, you just call it where you see it. I think Green Day have written some really good original songs. And I think that they did a song one time that had a Brian Adams part into a Motley Crue part. And that's, and that's, that's all there is to it. So speaking of the various sins perceived and real, um, and and accusations in regard to um, to Green Day. More than one listener tipped me off to this clip from a NoFX live album from the early '90s. Nice. Yes. So this is a chicken or the egg sort of question for me. Mm-hmm. Now, what year did this no effects song come out? So the longest line, I think this recording of this live recording might be from 93. The longest line is a 12 inch EP by no effects released in 1992. The first release on fat records. So two years earlier before Dookie came out. Now, I think this, this was like a to the homie shout out. You know what I mean? I think they love no effects. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that Bay Area punk community is really tight with each other. Yeah. So, you know, do you have the time to listen to me? Why? Even though it's the same melody. Yeah. I don't think 
the rest of the song sounds as much like Basket Case. I don't. I agree. I agree. I agree. To me, I would say if it was, I guess I don't tend to think of Fat Mike as being somebody whose jokes are good natured. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you might, right. you might well be right. Um, uh, to me, I don't think they're saying you took our song. I think it might be a little, hey, you're in our, you're in our lane. Yeah, but, but like I said, No Effects came out first, so he wasn't really. Let me, let me ask, has No Effects complained about this? I guess I should not say. That I, not that I'm aware of. And so unfortunately, this is as much as I know about this. I looked into it to see if they've said anything. And if they have, I'm not aware of it. And I apologize because there's probably five people listening right now who know everything about this, who've written, no, yeah, who've written several fanzine, fanzines about it. So forget, forgive our uh, forget our ignorance, but yeah. it's done with love and uh, and passion. I will say this. Is there anything more unpunk than suing a punk band no, <laughs> for I know. plagiarism? You know, so it, they're kind of insulated from from all of that. And again, you know, Green Day got to be so big that there was a residual effect where people went backwards to to, to figure out who their influences were. So if that was stolen from No Effects, they've made more money off that plagiarism uh, simply because you know Green Day did it, or it's just a simple uh, antidote in the annals of history that. A few people know, and it's a it's a sweet little shout out. You that's know? right. That's right. Yeah, Green Day do, does be function as the 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 starter kit for you know that could be the first punk band you get into, and and most people are gonna stay there. But the kind of person who's inclined to go, okay, well, you know, this is just the beginning of our journey. Green yeah. Day, Green Day would have been. I hate to trash. I don't think Hot Topic is as shitty as everybody else likes to joke about it being hot. I mean, what I would have loved to have had a Hot Topic in my town when I was growing up. We didn't have anything close to that, but. Green Day's the the would have been the best selling shirt at for the punk leaning people in 1995 or whatever. But a significant minority of those people will then start making their way into the Op Ivy shirts as a result. That, exactly right. They they were the spicy tuna roll of the sushi <laughs> experience. That nice. was your intro into into uh you know sushi, much like Green Day. And I look at Green Day right now, like yes, they they definitely start as a punk band. But to me, Green Day is a rock and roll band. Sure. They're the Who. No doubt. They're Led Zeppelin. They get mentioned in in, in, in with, with those uh in the rarefied era of those names. But we've gone down this little Green Day rabbit hole before and like inspired by because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to use any plagiarism terms where, you know, there's some Brian Adams, you know, straight up Nicks, you know, during yeah. the uh the the Saint Jimmy uh thing on American Idiot. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Jesus right? of suburbia, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus Suburbia. And Again, I don't. I mean, Billy Joe's so talented and arguably, you know, one of our greatest songwriters of our generation. I mean, he's it's just he's just got to be simply by the numbers, whether you like him or not. He's just got to be. Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah. I mean, he's written some incredible songs. I mean, yeah, but when you don't even think about Good Riddance, when you think about the Green Day catalog, that's how great their music is. Yeah, you know, Good Riddance. When you think about Green Day, it's about it's one of the biggest songs of the '90s. That's used in every graduation and you know every every memorial for anybody. It was the end. Of, um, it was the end of Seinfeld, if I'm not mistaken. I, I, you're exactly right. You know, so it, the their cultural impact is, and I love punk rock is beyond punk rock. You yeah. know, um, so but I but I but there are a lot of leanings in Green Day songs, and I know there was a Kink song. That follows that riff to, you know, warning, live without warning. It's the exact riff, the exact riff from a kink song. It's like Sunday morning. Forgive me, uh, you purists out there. I'm, I'm, I don't remember the exact name, but it's exact riff. So you yeah. can do a little deep dive in that. So another 
Uh, you, you, this is this is not this is not plagiarism. This is just we're just having fun here. This is uh, my buddy Tony Thaxton, who's a frequent guest on this show and the host of the um, the uh, Bizarre Albums podcast, which is well worth a listen in its own right. Pointed out to his ears the unmissable similarity between uh, this one right here. By the way, fan of Tony's, I love his podcast. Yeah. And anybody who likes this will like Tony. I mean, Hell Tony yeah. does the incredible deep dive. A guy who would not challenge in Rock and Roll Jeopardy in a million years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to what he thinks. And this band, the Goo Goo Dolls, that's yeah. obviously Iris. I toured with uh, three months in 99. I'm very friendly with the band. I don't know what the plagiarism here is here. <laughs> so, um, by is the way. Is it going to make me angry like Young Turks? Did I miss no, it? No, 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 no. Well, um, uh, by the way, I happened to peek at this on Spotify yesterday. Within shouting difference, I believe, of, of a billion streams now on Spotify. So. Well, let me give it, and let me give a little context to mm-hmm. that. Because, you know, let's say, you know, Every Morning was a pretty big song from the 90s, correct? Yeah, sure. I mean, I you know, not to you know, pat myself on the back. No but, doubt. You know, I'm, I'm as I'm saying this, I'm patting myself on the back. Um, it has 160 million streams. Wow! Just to show you that that how how big a billion streams off one song is. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Gigantic. Yeah, far and away, S- slide, which was which is their second most popular song on Spotify, is more in that 100 200 yeah. range. But this is the, yeah, yeah. Iris is is and, over. And, and, and totally. You know, they give you a plaque now if you get a billion streams. Oh, really? Like, you know, you're supposed to be grateful for that, you know, from Spotify. Here's your billion streams. And by the way, I'll take it. I'd love to have another plaque. I haven't got one since 2000. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, they give you a billion stream plaque. Like, yeah. thank you for making us a billion and you making your $4,000. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the royalties for that billion almost paid for the plaque. Well, I think they do something like 100 million streams, I think is $4,000. So, so arguably writing one of the biggest songs in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Resnick sitting on 40 grand for that billion streams. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here, here's the similarity that, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that Tony Thaxton swears by. It's nine o'clock on a Saturday. The regular crowd shuffles in. There's an old man sitting next to me, making love to his tonic and gin. That's a bit of a stretch, Armstrong, to me. You know? <laughs> yeah, I And agree. I'll tell you why. The descending piano thing uh-huh. takes me out of the melody he's trying to act like. You know, look, the first note, uh, uh, there's a little bit of similarity. Mm-hmm. Never in a million years as a music band that I ever put the two and two together. No. And you'd have a hard time in a court of law <laughs> with that one. You know, if we're going to do, inspired by maybe a note or two, and I've taken, I have taken sure. uh, words from songs and 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 tiny phrasing and, and you know, maybe that happened. And Tony's the kind of guy that probably could pick that up like you, but I, I'm not, I'm not sold in that way as a play, as even inspired by. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And also, although I can't put my finger on like the the traditional Irish song that I can, I assume Piano oh, Man yeah. is based on, it's also a very different story when the song that is, you know, in question for having been the inspiration itself belongs to an earlier tradition. And 
every single one of us the first time we heard Piano Man was like, oh yeah, it's like one of those songs. I couldn't tell you right. what those songs are, but we all know we all know exactly what we're talking. There's another one of those coming up. You know what? I'll do it. I'll do it right now. I, I will say this though mm-hmm. on that because like when you know Billy Joel goes, and it goes there, and so does you know uh-huh. Johnny's gonna get there. Yeah. So I know. you know now that I'm thinking about it, it grows my on brain, you. My obsessive brain is in there, so. <laughs> I don't know, Tony, you might be onto something, bro. Okay, so uh, this is a similarity that I noticed recently, and I guess I would make the same case that it's just two songs that sort of belong to the same tradition, but they came out pretty close to one another, and boy, at least to my ears, do they sound similar. Now, I don't need to tell you, I'm always, I'm at that point in my life where I get to enjoy learning the same things over and over and over because I forget them upon learning them. I don't need to tell you who is the person doing the scatting on that. It is not Stevie Wonder. Uh, No. Well, you you know, now now I have to learn something over. Is it Al Jarreau? No, that's a decesent guest. It's uh, Luther Vandross. Oh God! It, and it, it, and you can hear the tone in yeah. it too. The do, do, do. you know? To me, I thought that was Stevie Wonder. I always. I have, know it, it makes sense. I'm learning stuff. Yeah, isn't it? It's, it's like when uh, it's like when Axl Rose had Shannon Hoon do an Axl Rose impression on "Don't Cry." Right. Yeah. I thought he was only in the video. Nah, he's for, there. For Don't cry. But he was actually he's, he's in going, it. And when you isolate, you figure, yeah, yeah right. exactly. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, you know what? You know, dude, I want to learn something new every day. And I'm, yeah. you know, we're not above learning. No, know? no. Okay. So I just recently, the light bulb went off that. Wait, uh, hold on a second. Yes. Luther Vandross is not in the part-time lover video. I don't recall the video. I do because I'm old enough. So this is throwing me off a little bit, but I'm still owning it and love it. There's somebody else in there too. Um, uh, do you know what? I want to say the high... Uh, double uh, the, the, either the, the octave, level, yeah, in yeah. the chorus is uh, is the the falsetto guy from Earth, Wind, and Fire as well. Oh, Philip uh, Philip Bailey. Yeah, Stevie Wonder took a song that he could have very capably done all done three all. parts of, and for some weird reason, farmed out two of them to people who do the same thing that he does. You know, those situations call for maybe five percent better than Stevie Wonder does. Yeah, let's just say their genius didn't serve the song, and Stevie could have done it himself. Yeah, maybe just throwing some homies, some publishing, and you know, some artist royalties. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, so do you hear a similarity between that, which came out in 1985, and this, which came out three years earlier? radically never put it together mm-hmm. and i think it's the pulse of the guitar it's almost like chink 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 it's, it's the gr- bass groove you know yeah. i wonder totally if it's the same chord progression that's the only thing i'm not aware of it feels the same the third chord in the um in man eater is I couldn't hum it off the top of my head, but it was a little unexpected. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, not this much of a savant with this stuff. Obviously, I read the Wikipedia on each of these last night. Daryl Hall says John Oates had been jamming on some chords, was doing a reggae thing with Edgar Winter or something. And he goes, I like the chords, but it's got to have a different vibe. And that's where they, uh, and, and that's where this song comes from. So it's not as, um, 
Obviously, it was a chord progression worth saving. It, if it was just as simple as din 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 din, right? You're, that's you're not you're not inventing anything. You're not keeping anything. The third chord does actually go somewhere, but it doesn't. Look, if I'm and I'm not accusing anybody of plagiarism here, but if you are going to plagiarize something, that's what you do: is you change the third chord so it's sure. technically different, but doesn't change this the vibe of the thing at all. Now, I think worth. Uh, I'll ahead. give you a perfect example and a personal in the song every morning. Okay, we wanted to write something familiar uh, to uh, Sweet Jane by mm -hmm. Lou Reed. Bum, 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 bum. But luckily, my guitar player forgot to go to the B. So he just went to, he, he, didn't, he didn't know how to play it. So he just went A, E, D, E, A. So exactly what you're saying, we removed that thing because yeah. he forgot. We were trying to do the exact chord progression and what we were going to figure it out later, but because he forgot how it, because our, our producer, David Kahn goes, no, you're missing a chord on Sweet Jane. goes, dan, 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 to G, dan, to B. So I'm, I know I'm boring people that don't know. So that's exactly right, Tully. That happens sometimes. And I think in this song, it's stylized. It's the reggae feel that really gives it up. But boy, the, the, the tempo and the phrasing feel real familiar when you put them together but I'm never accusing Stevie Wonder of anything. Well, no, and, and also, now, uh, again, these belong to some sort of tradition that we all sort of communally know, even if I can't put name the song. Hall & Oates would say, yeah, we wanted to do a Motowny kind of thing. And I, I don't know off the top of my head what Motown song it is we're talking about, but you can't you can't accuse Stevie Wonder of ripping off Hall & Oates if Hall & Oates themselves said they're doing a Motown thing when Stevie Wonder is one of the fundamental right. Motown artists. That's a bit cyclical in that Yeah. So you're essentially suing yourself. You yeah. know what I mean? If yeah. You, yeah. Stevie you Wonder could have called his song Maneater and right. Daryl Hall and John Oates could have dealt with it. And they would have liked it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Know? Exactly. Um, but if, but if uh, Maneater had Philip Bailey and... Uh, and Luther, uh, yeah. Who was the other one we're talking about? Luther Vandross. And Luther Vandross, then we might have had a problem. So, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And now, <laughs> speaking of Motown, I'm going to give this one away. This, I never put together, and I happened to come across this in some article or, or something. When I was pretending to listen to my children, I was reading about <laughs> was reading about Aerosmith. I'm not alone. Good. Off the top of your head, can you think of... Um, a song where Aerosmith would have, before they even released the song, said, yeah, 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 you got us, and shared songwriting credit with legendary Motown songwriters. Boy, I can't even imagine a song by Aerosmith that was a hit. Yeah. I, nothing, nothing comes to mind. Check this out. Still got nothing, not even close. Maybe that, maybe that, they, maybe it was that, my, maybe that other part where I started horns coming in. My mother told me, maybe that, you know, my mother told me there'd be days like this. Nope. I, I'm searching. I'm searching right now. Here we was go. that the part that they was? That was oh, uh, uh, absolutely, positively. Okay, okay, and you're okay. gonna and you're gonna kick I, yourself when you hear it. They, if I'm not mistaken, they literally, if you look inside the liner notes of Pump, shared songwriting credit. Didn't even bother trying to incredible. pass this up. Check it out. So 
I don't know if because they're such two different styles of music, I'm picking that up. You know, I think he could have got away with inspired by there. You know what I mean? Especially because it's one part of the song. Well, it is the chorus. It's, it's definitely familiar when I look at it. And I, I I applaud them for bringing it up and being fair and, and, and saying that's where that inspiration came from. But Steven Tyler makes everything his own. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I I agree. But it's not it's not an obscure little tune that they... Oh, no, no, no. By any means, one of the Motown classics. <laughs> yeah. But... You know, me to the others. I think because they add that take me to the other side part. Yeah. It it takes me to the other side of not thinking it was so plagiarizing. Yeah, I mean I'm embarrassed to say I would totally rather listen to the Aerosmith song than the Four Tops <laughs> song. That that says way more about me than it does about uh No, I don't think you're alone. I mean, in terms of popularity, I mean that was the number one song, I think, the other side, you know. Um, the songwriting team of Holland, Dozier Holland were eventually given songwriting credit. Oh, after threatening to file suit over what they perceived to be. So this was not quite as quite as benevolent. Um, okay, so then that that might have been a concession. Look, you want to go down this road of hell and lawyers and all this, we'll give them 15, 20% of the song. This is a gigantic record anyway. We're fine. They're fine. We'd avoid a lawsuit. And most importantly, we avoid a public lawsuit. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of this. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah. I think that was probably the end game for Aerosmith. That was probably their legal advice, who obviously had great lawyers there. Said, so, yeah, we can fight this. But it's going to be worth the PR feedback or, you know, kickback if we do. Yeah. Because yeah. I would have never in a million years known this unless you brought it up. And it would have certainly been brought up by MTV News or whatever back in the day if they didn't put a kibosh on it, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was real easy to control uh, when there was only one or two, like, media games in town. It was, you know... If you want Steven Tyler to be hanging his gangly arm around Tabitha Soren anytime soon. Right. So to control the narrative, yeah. why not just erase the narrative and go, no problem. Yeah. Let's agree on a percentage we all admit to, and we'll go from there. How about this? Um, back to, I guess, Motown-y stuff. Back to Stevie Wonder. What do you think? This is another one that I noticed that I've been sort of uh, ruminating on. give a shout out to the production of that really quickly yeah my god that record came out in what 85 86 it still sounds as as you know as big and bold as today you know so many times you hear the story of the record was done and and we were one day left to you know we had six hours left on the clock and somebody had this dumb little idea and the pressure was off and nobody cared and we weren't even sure like we could do a whole show of of songs where at least the artist claims i wasn't even going to put it on the album. And I know for a fact that that was the case with Sledgehammer, that it's Peter Gabriel's a man who takes himself very, very, very seriously. And that's a very, very silly song. And that's, I would be willing to wager how something like that comes from an artist like that is that they're just, they find a little riff that they like, or maybe they partially borrowed from Stevie wonder. And then they just write some dumb nonsensical lyrics. And next thing you know, you have probably the, I would imagine that was the biggest commercial hit he ever had. I, oh, it's got to be. Yeah. You know, it's it's definitely got to be. Yeah. You know, and it powered that whole record, and it made him That's a superstar. Right. That's you know? right. All these things are true. That's all. The, all those things are absolutely true. So yeah, I've already kind of showed my hand. Uh, it's not. It's not stolen. But here's the similarity that I noticed recently. 
I'll tell you what, the, the horns are spot on. Yeah. I mean, that that is just like a complete rip. You can yeah. hear that. Yeah. You know, and it gets, there's a really interesting point in your subconscious as a songwriter. Have I heard this before? Like, do you think like Peter Gabriel, I want to rip off that part? You know what no, I mean? Sometimes no. he just, as a fan of music, as a songwriter, it just comes out of you. And I'm, I hate that. The muse hit me and it just inspired me. Sometimes it just happens. Yeah. You know, it just sounds familiar before. You're like, I don't know where it comes from. And like, is it mine? Is it not? You know, and yeah, absolutely. I give Peter Gabriel the benefit of the doubt on that. You yeah, know? I, I would too. And I'm sure you've had the experience. I've had it. I'm sure every songwriter has had it where you come up with a thing and you think it's great and you think it's yours. And then you realize it's stolen and you realize it's taken from a piece of music that you don't like. And somehow when it was your idea, <laughs> all of a sudden it was a, it was a good song. That's it's absolutely true. I can't yeah. tell you. And, and I've done that with a couple of Beatles songs where I've written like this chord thing and a thing. And I sent it to my guitar player. That's yeah. how we kind of always started writing the germs of our songs. And he goes, dude, that's uh, that's boy by Beatles. Like, oh, and you know what I mean? And then he broke it down and he showed me where it was. I'm like, oh, my God. So that's happened numerous times to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember a quote from from Axl Rose during the real heyday of Guns N' Roses saying, yeah, you just you 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 you, you write a song and you go, man, this is better than Zeppelin. And then you put on a record and you go, oh, man, this is Zeppelin. It's Zeppelin. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think if you're a fan of music at all, that's going to happen as you're a songwriter. Yeah. All right. So continuing this theme of uh, I don't know what I'm, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm just saying, boy, I've always thought that was pretty similar. Right. Allegedly. Yeah. Who the heck knows? Um, I wonder if this is a real deep one. Um, I wonder if you have ever, if the same thought has ever occurred to you because this is core hair metal stuff. Um, we'll begin with a massive hit song that everybody remembers. You know, I feel like you don't, that is another one of these weird casualties of where the 80s has become sort of this thing that a lot of things that were huge hit songs at the time just got left out of 80s nostalgia. I don't know if, are 80s channels still playing that song? Because that's, no. if you no. don't, if you don't like hair metal, that's corny and cheesy and, and it may as well be a song from Cats by Andrew Lloyd Webber. But if you can buy into what those two people were doing, holy crap, one of the great, great, great hair metal ballads, like really way up there. It's really high quality songwriting, yeah. beautiful vocal performances. Amazing. You know, I think I, the ones that have lasted longer are the ones that don't challenge you as much. Like, you know, Every Rose Has Its Thorn, Heaven, you know, uh, you, you know, uh, from, from Warren, you know, they're the ones that, you know, even uh, even like um, um, Ballad of Jane, you know, these mm -hmm. songs that we just want, we want them to go D, C, G and yeah. nothing else. Yeah. You know, where this one goes to minors, it has Ozzy singing, it has Lita singing. So there's a lot going on there and it challenges some beautiful vocal performance. So I think it's almost it's almost almost too technical to have survived you know, what? how we want our desserts, our hair metal ballads, like I said, DCG, yeah. don't challenge us with minor chords, don't give us raked arpeggios through the middle, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. We just want to, and also, if we can't 
guitar, air guitar, the entire solo, we don't want it either. You know, yeah. that's what I think. It is interesting. I, I feel like there's a couple of songs. I keep pointing this out to my wife. She can't get enough of me talking about 80s music to her. Um, that, uh, <laughs> we found a home. I, I feel like a, there's a couple of songs that I think that maybe it's just there's some fatigue that Target's just been playing the same 80s songs for 50 years now that they just have to let a couple back in that they had put in timeout for a little while. I swear to God, I keep hearing The Rhythm of the Night by DeBarge. The guy who made my sandwich at Bay City's Deli was singing it along to the radio yesterday. <laughs> I had not heard that song since like 1986, and I think people just realized, hey, you probably think it's a Michael Jackson song if you don't know any better, and we just need to get something in here to mix it up. Yeah, that one and uh, uh, what, "Moving Sidewalks" by Dan Hartman. I swear to God, I just follows either Ooh. either that or the uh, or the algorithm is really getting creepily good at finding me in stores. Well, I was going to say because, yeah, that would be incredible. But, yeah. you know, it's this new 5G experience. They're Who following knows? you, Tully. Yes, that's right. But, but I hear, I've, I've never not heard Rhythm of the Night. Okay. I have it. Okay. So, you know, sometimes these things escape you. Yeah. But there's no song coming home by Cinderella. Oh, yeah. I took a walk down the road. I mean, that to me is one of the, yeah. yeah. I'm coming home. Here I come. To me, that's one of the best hair ballads. I hate saying hair in front of anything, but for the audience's clarification and yeah. to sort of have a genuine semantics use of terms um coming home is one of the best ballads of that era and was gigantic then and that is completely forgotten you never hear that on any of these ball on a at least i don't no i you're absolutely you're absolutely right uh and and it's tempting to say it's because tom Kiefer's voice isn't palatable to a modern audience but it doesn't that doesn't hold back acdc and that's all no, but he also started in a lower register you know i took a yeah, yeah. oh i know yeah so before uh, but I guess, you know, don't know what you got till it's gone. I still hear that every now and then. And so I guess I'm kind of, uh, you know, negating my own uh, Cinderella love. So this is a deep cut. You'll know it. But I always thought that Close My Eyes Forever bore an uncanny resemblance to uh, a song that with beyond the shadow of a doubt, Lita Ford and Ozzy Osbourne and anybody else who had anything to do with that record would have been intimately familiar with this right here. When's the last time you heard God Bless the Children of the Beast by Molly Crow? It's been a long time. And I got to say, your Motley Crue fandom is almost putting you in a position where you feel like that's inspired by your plagiarism. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you another thing. I don't think you can sue for chord progression. No, I tend to agree. I just thought it was... Okay, so everybody who would have been involved in hair metal had listened to, had had burned through several vinyl copies of Shout at the Devil. That's an instrumental yeah. track before Helter Skelter. I think it's like track three or track four on, on Shout yeah. at the Devil. It's essentially the same chord progression and it's... And and the same picking almost. You know, you can almost, they slowed it down a little bit, yeah. you know, to the credit. Right, and but... then when the electric guitar comes in, the lead on God Bless Children of the Beast, I swear to God, it sounds like Ozzy. Ozzy sounds like an electric guitar. He really does. <laughs> what a unique voice. And I wonder what Lita does or did in the past when that was number one or number 10 or whatever it was. And she had to sing that without Ozzy. You know what I mean? Oh, I've seen her. I've seen her perform it. She, she tours with a, a guitar player who does. Oh, that does the, the, the parts. That, that, that sings the Ozzy part. Yeah, dude, I saw Lita. 
I've never been like the huge, I don't have a strong feeling about her one way or the other, but I saw one of the coolest, most rock and roll things. I could be wrong, but I want, if, if, if I'm wrong, I don't want to be right. They, <laughs> she, she was on the hair metal festival. I'm looking at, I'm so proud of, um, uh, even though it has a gigantic logo of my former employer on it, it's signed by everybody who's everybody in hair metal who performed at the Sirius XM hair nation festival. And, and she was on that bill and it was a revolving stage. Cause it was just, it was such a great show. So good. They did such a nice job with it. Um, and I saw from the side of the stage, cause I was privileged to be backstage. Something was going on with Lita's amp and somebody's touching a thing and she's touching a thing and somebody's touching a thing and it starts to revolve. And I just saw Lita Ford reach down and just do the legendary guitarist thing. She just put her hand on the top of the one on the far left and just ran it across. She just fucking turned everything up to 10. Like, like Jerry Lee Lewis on a piano. Just exactly. Preci- precisely. Just like, is it this? Is it, is, is it this? Is it that? You know what? The stage is turning. I've been here. I was in the goddamn runaways. I'm just turning everything to 10 and away we go. I thought that was the coolest thing. Well, you know, we can always turn down. You know, it's yeah. hard to turn up when you're out there. So she might as well be in control of that. I saw her. There was something recently. And you probably, you follow all those like blabbermouse and things like that. Here and, there, here, here, here and there. I do. Yeah. I, I do because they're always like, hey, there was a Rock Island, you know, metal fest. And they'll show the live bands, whether it's Bang Tango, Britney Fox, you know, and, I, and Lita Ford played, I think, last weekend. And she sounded amazing. She looks she still great. She sounds great. She She's looks amazing. She's yeah. old. She looks great. Mm-hmm. She, she adds Runaway songs. She does Lita Ford songs. And it's a fun show. And you got Bobby Rock on drums, dude, you know, so you can't lose. Have, have you read, I don't know if we've discussed this, have you read Lita's book? You have to. I have. It's yeah. crazy. It's unbelievable, and the, the stuff she's been through. And I know recently she's had a lot of, you know, some problems, family problems. I mean, she, the, the, the gal's been through a lot. She's still out there rocking, man. You know. I mean, it, 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 it's all the Kim Fowley stuff is crazy in that book. You know, it's just yeah. He's Kim. If you, those you don't know, Kim Fowley, I guess, was an impresario yeah. of this even late, late, uh, late sixties, early seventies. He put together the Runaways. He was kind of the Lou Pearlman, if you will, of the Runaways sure. being put together. He said, I want to put, I guess he called them all dogs or something. He was really, I mean, the optics would not fly today for Mr. Kim Fowley, yeah. but he did put together the runaways, but the stories of how they were put together and the way he treated them is it's, it's incredible. She survived that. And Joan survived that. You yeah. Know? The, well, there's the stuff that they went through with Kim Fowley. There's the stuff that they went through being poorly chaperoned young girls on a rock and roll tour around the world. There's the, um, the, uh, the mentors, that she had in in her life, um, you know, the way that she puts it in the book is that she spent a lot of time hanging out alone in Richie Blackmore's bedroom. The relationship didn't get romantic until she turned eighteen. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. And then there's when she's actually managed to survive and 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 thrive as a solo artist. And who would have seen that coming after Joan Jett's success? And it seemed like she would be holding the bag. And what place is there for a woman in hair metal? make some poor personal decisions in terms of life partners and I, ends up living on an island and there's only two houses on the entire island and they, they literally built them and and then she and her husband is in is in one and his buddy built another one that's like five feet away from there yeah <laughs> and right, she's like right. what well we're we have the whole island why why are we too close to our day why can i see into their dining room for my window and her husband you're talking about is Jim Gillette. Yes, of Nitro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who yeah. was the lead singer of Nitro. And believe it or not, was the first singer in Tough. Stevie Rochelle's Tough. He nice. was the first singer in Tough. It makes it sense. Or not. It makes sense. Uh, yeah, and then Tough, but Tough wanted to go another way, like a poison way. And he was going that, yeah, 
Yeah. He actually had and made a gazillion dollars. If you opened up a Metal Edge mm -hmm. or a Rip Magazine mm -hmm. or any of those Metal Mags back in the day, he had uh, vocal power technique videotapes you could buy for him. I used to look at those and he showed Jim Gillette and showed his white hair sparked up. And he was like in that, you know, his legs were apart. Like he had the fist and he's like, sing with power. And apparently he sold a million copies of that thing and never had to work again, you know? Yeah, no, Nitro are... Um... They're more lunatic than Spinal Tap, but they're they, they're but, for yeah they're for they, serious they were serious only you know, yeah Michelangelo on guitar going blah, 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 double necks going the wrong way yeah <laughs> and it's it's almost like you know you take a guy from VIT the Vocal Institute yeah you know Drum Institute Bass Institute yeah. GIT and just go make a record yeah Nitro now that was their thing oh is, by the way mm -hmm. and just keep ripping whatever you do in your respective instrument and we're going to record it exactly know? yeah i think the guitar player was supposedly in the guinness book of world record for the most notes played in a minute or something and they always said right. and, and jim gillette was said to have the famous story was broke um a camera lens on the set of their music video because he was singing so high it just yeah and he can break a wine glass apparently that's a party trick he can do with just yeah. like eight octave metal range you know talk about you know talk about tom Kiefer. You know, his voice being degrading every now and then. Imagine walking to a party and all the glasses are gone because Jim Gillette was there. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, Nitro was on, <laughs> was on a different level. Okay, here's another one. This one, I'm going to flat out say uh, I do not think that this one is coincidental. coincidental. Again, we're talking about yeah. borrowing a groove, not, not stealing a song. And that's why I'm not even going to play a vocal section from either of these songs. But we will begin with... What to me was, I believe this was the biggest hit from Garbage, which is surprising to me because to me they had five songs that were better than this one. But this was a really, really, really big hit back in the 90s. People will remember this. Right, and that's what I have, no, I have no guesses on that at all. At the beginning, the drums sound like Train in Vain. They do, they do, right? and it's funny because so do the drums on the song that that one sounds a whole hell of a lot like. Yeah, I'm only happy when it rains. Um, no, uh, the song that I'm going to say. Oh, you mean the other one I'm going to play? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, positive. So, I was yeah. going to say I think I'm only happy when it rains was maybe bigger than Stupid Girl, but I, I, that's just my. I just remember day. it hanging around on radio, and it was yeah, because uh, they had such good. Oh my goodness, um, great band. The, the queerest of the queer. I'm only happy when it rains. Um, uh, Super Vixen. I came to fix you up. Can mm -hmm. shut tear your little world apart. They had so many. So many she's great awesome. Things. She was yeah. such a star. You know, and then, and then she was on the Alanis Morissette tour last year, and oh. I, I privy to some information. They were a little concerned about, you know, whether this tour was going to do well. Every It was one of the biggest tours of the summer last year. Great. Alanis Morissette, Garbage. I think KT Turnstall started out. So. Good for them. I, I like I like all the people you just mentioned, but uh, yeah. see if you hear a similarity between that song from Garbage and this song from My Bloody Valentine.
you're such a fan of music, man. You are, you're, you're just such a smart fan of music and you're putting a lot of things together. Because you know Butch Vig, who produced yeah. Garbage, who's yeah. in Garbage, mm -hmm. loved my bloody Valentine. Well, I just so assume I just assume anybody to me what Garbage was was three guys who were very, very talented, very, very in the know, very, very tasteful, said we can pool our collective taste and we can package that with an attractive lead singer and make pop songs. And I'm, by the way, fully on board with that plan. I'm not talking about that in a negative way. I think it's awesome that they did that and I liked I can I still like garbage. But My Bloody Valentine was, there's no Smashing Pumpkins without My Bloody Valentine. My Bloody Valentine was completely, they didn't even have songs. I've always described them. They sound like a rock band melting. It, it, it's, it's, this, it's this big mush of sound. What I just played you is far and away the most straightforward piece of music on that, right. on that second My Bloody Valentine record. But everybody with any taste knew that that was a great big heap of, I would say, I would compare them to like, a, like an English Sonic Youth. Of where I, I think, what they yeah. were doing was just there for the taking for everybody else. Take as much as you want and put a song to it, and you can you can be on Radioactive Records in 1994. Absolutely, and I, I think they're kind of left out of the grunge com conversation for better or for worse, according to them. Who knows? Because um, even Gavin Rosdale mm -hmm. cites My Bloody Valentine, Hell yeah. as the impetus of anything he's ever done. You know, uh, and when you hear something like that, Butch Vig was smart enough. The bass goes down on mm -hmm. that note. So it sounds like the chord uh, progression, the guitar uh, is playing, uh, the Butch is playing in garbage. So he was smart enough to like the guitar stays on one note in Bloody Valentine. But the guitar in garbage goes down to where the bass is going. So that's where the familiarity is. Uh, but, you know, I absolutely agree with you that this was inspired by no doubt, without a doubt. And we may never know the answer, but you and I know in our heart of hearts. Yeah, and you know what? I think sometimes when you put aside legality and, you know, morality and what have you, My Bloody Valentine really came up with an amazing sound. And I listened to their record, but they really, they, it wasn't about songs. It, I'm, I'm, you know, this was the way music was always supposed to be. This is the way stories were always supposed to be when people are around a campfire is, People bring what they have to the stew and, and over generations, all of those strengths get combined into these, you know, the Homer, you know, the Iliad, the Odyssey, like that's how music is supposed to progress. It's not supposed to be, well, I came up with these three notes and so nobody can ever touch them or else you have to give me all of your money. Just what was right for music was for people to take my bloody Valentine and go, yeah. that was amazing. You're a genius. I'll take it from here. You know, and it's it's a bummer we can't just have this discussion because we live in such a litigious society yeah. that like, oh my God, you know, everyone wants to get paid off someone else's. But what's the first thing anybody asks a band when they make a new record? What inspired you on this record? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, if you're in a band, it's because you love music. If you're an artist, you love music. And I'm assuming you have your your their bands that influenced you. You know, I, I the Sex Pistols influenced me to get on stage. You'd never know in a million years when you hear the music of us. But but like if you're gonna go back to like inspired by being say a, a legal sort of recourse, which obviously happened to Blurred Lines, you'd have to say the Pogues uh, should be fired for every song they ever wrote, because what they're doing is taking from old English uh, traditional songs like you stated earlier, but applying it in a sort of a punk rock <laughs> rock and roll way. So public domain, you know, public public domain is fair. Everybody can you can do your punk rock version of Happy Birthday all day. No, you're you're right. You're right about that in those songs, and some people don't even know who wrote those, you know, those right. Irish classics. But uh, so, but I think it's 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 
it's a good example of like bands are just inspired by other bands end of story and unless you are ripping a band off you know you know note for note uh, you know a melody for melody or if you're sampling them and not giving them credit those are obviously legal ramifications there but being inspired by a man there isn't a band that you love yeah that isn't inspired by someone and is incorporated into their work and there's probably not a band that you love well probably many of the bands that you love have because here's the thing that you can you can accidentally but like i'm willing to believe maybe sam smith really d- didn't think he knew that tom petty song i'm willing to believe that's at least very very possible you know what somewhere in your music collection there's a song that somebody flat out stole and then figured out a way to cover their tracks you can absolutely accidentally steal you can innocently steal things and you can also uh totally purposely steal things with no legal consequences whatsoever there's tricks that you can do to change things around oh. to where to where you know as, as they say good artists borrow great artists steal I mean, it's that simple. Absolutely. I remember, I remember uh, Scott, uh, uh, Scott Weiland, rest his soul, would say that. He goes, no, I, I took that from a, uh, a Gordon Lightfoot song and I, I wanted to, re- you know, incorporate him. He would actually tell you what he was doing. So it yeah. happens all, all the time. The Rolling Stones, man. Come on, dude. They have Muddy Waters and all the blues. Mm-hmm. That they, they were taken from all that. That's what they spawned. It spawned a genre of music, you know? And like you said, there's a Led Zeppelin guy, uh, a deep dive anybody can go into. Mm-hmm. If you if you YouTube Led Zeppelin, you know, uh, copyright, there's uh, 50 songs that the riffs are the same. Yeah. You know, things were different in the 60s, you know, but they are exactly the same, you know. But, of course, Led Zeppelin gets a pass because, you know, they, they, they're a great songwriter. They, they, can, they can write a stick and craft a tune on their own. Scott Weiland borrowed music, you say. Next thing you'll tell me, uh, the Easter uh, Bunny. Uh, the Easter Bunny uh, is not real. Uh, <laughs> Okay, here's here, this is a really, 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 really stupid one. I was on the fence about even including this one, but uh, this is just another thing that just rattles around in my brain. Do you hear a similarity between... Because just two two bands you would never, ever, ever think of. Do you hear any similarity between this? And I'm just gonna play this one right away, so you can laugh. Yeah. You see, so you can laugh mm-hmm. at me. That is like a real <laughs> wide stretch, Mike. I mean, you have to tell me where you're even the 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 forget. Where's the inspiration? What are you even? What are you even uh, correlating together? I think just because I can sing the, I can easily sing the chorus to one over. You could, you could switch the, you could take the music track from one and the melody from the other, and you could flip them. And I think you would have, you still have two functional, probably still two hit songs. Yeah, well, a lot of DJs do that too. You know, yeah. that, that, that mashup stuff they do, and I think you're right. Maybe mm-hmm. that's a great mashup no one's discovered yet. You know, Maybe. you could you can go DJ in Vegas. Uh, <laughs> mashup, the, the world doesn't yeah, know that it needs. Some 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 songs just sit nicely with others, but I do not think. Okay. Dave Gahan and friends. <laughs> or I should say Martin Gore, when yeah. he was writing that, was going, dude, this Abracadabra's got to be part of the direction of the patch mode, you know? Did and you notice? a band who covered Abracadabra. Did you notice the little, they did put a little magic noise. 
Nope, I hear you. In I there, abracadabra e. And it might have been another <laughs> Peter Gabriel. I heard those horns from somewhere, but I can't place it. But yeah. did I write it or did I not? Yeah. Yep. 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 Okay. This one. This one to me is a little bit more on the nose and perhaps even indubitable. Indubitable. Almost got that one out. Okay. <laughs> You know where I'm going with this? Why do I know a metal band's coming next with that, <laughs> no. that guitar riff? No. Okay. No? Am I am I am I crazy? Hear me out on this. You ready? No, you're not crazy. There's an absolute similarity between the two, you know? Pre-chorus, another pre-chorus like, and chorus. What's that? Pre-chorus and chorus. Yeah, but Run To You goes somewhere in the chorus where that song doesn't, you know? Did they do the Run To You, Run To You, blah, 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 blah feelings right, gonna stay all night, it, Run To You. It sort of goes up where Petty's kind of goes back down. Mm -hmm. Gonna run to you, you know? But I, I, I feel a bit, also though, I think those guys are almost birds of a feather. Yep. You know, they swam in the same pool in terms of rock and roll. And, and you know, a lot of people have stolen from Brian Adams, so I'm going to give him a pass. I don't think he purposely tried to. But, like, I mean, look, artists were inspiring each other. It's almost like we did that thing about the Bruce Springsteen bands that were so inspired. You know, yeah. they, they were kind of part of a, of a movement. And, you know, we're going to use Rickenbackers. We're going to use these amps. Might have been sharing producers, you know. So I think it's a natural uh, sharing of uh, aesthetic. You're a, you're a generous spirit, Mark McGrath. <laughs> Do we need to, it? speaking of people who were swimming in similar waters, um, need we demonstrate the similarities between a couple of John Cougar Mellencamp songs and some other songs that preceded them? We absolutely need to. <laughs> okay, so let's start with, okay, I, I'll play this and then I'll, I'll tell you the thing that I enjoy about the song a lot more than the song itself. Okay. Uh, and I think some people, if, if they had not put it together before, the light bulb probably just went off, that that sounds a bit like this. And by the way, the, the romantics, I would have loved to have been in the room when they wrote that. Because that, to me, that's one of those, um, you, you, I, I, I feel like I've been in the same universe of this. And I'm sure you have too. You've written big hit songs where you go, this can't, this can't be art. We, there's no way we just thought of that. That, what, 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 what is this? You know, supposedly, uh, I think it was yesterday by Paul McCartney, went around everywhere for a week playing it for people going, what is this? What, where did I get this from? I didn't make this up. And everyone's like, I've never heard that before. I think you got another one, Paul. Yeah. And, and also when they finished recording that, they must have gone, it, I mean, this, this is such a slam dunk. Yeah. Only other people are going to get in the way of this thing. 
you yeah. know and talk about legs like that song is bigger now today than it was when it came out that song is so gigantic play i do shows with wally palmer from the romantics mm -hmm. you know we'll go out we'll play a couple we'll sing our songs uh like at a corporate party or something and man that song every night just slays people just love it and it does have the chord progression a la la louie louie mm -hmm. you know i think it goes it does that a uh, DE thing that 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 our ROCK and USA does too. So again, you're doing a chord progression which cannot be copyrighted. You know what I mean? I mean, songwriters out there, if you ever want to write a hit song, go to songs that you like, look at their chord progression, and and you're halfway there. Yeah. Now, I promise you, you'll fuck the other half up because it's hard <laughs> to write a hit song. But you know, these chord progressions just always seem to work. The DCGs, the ADEs, you know, they just really are pleasant to the ears. You know? Yeah. Uh, so I, the actual name of the Mellencamp song is R-O-C-K, a salute to 60s rock. And I have always had this, I don't know if you can call it a conspiracy theory, but is this like a preemptive, you can't sue me because we're just saying right off the bat, we're all, we're all ripping off Louie Louie. I'm literally making this an homage to a whole thing that came before us, romantics. I feel like that subtitle was aimed directly at the romantics. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think you're 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 wrong about that. Um, you know, even though my life's been a lie because I thought it was R-O-C-K in USA. I didn't know that was the real title of the song. R-O-C-K. Yeah, maybe it maybe it is R O I well it's it's uh it is acronymed. Like it, it is, uh, it is R O C K. The song's not called rock. It's called R O C K. Let me, let's figure out what the actual title is. This is important. No, I'm curious. Cause that, that adds a new dimension to the song for me. And what you're saying is entirely correct. It's true. Uh, you know, you're right. R O C K in the USA, uh, parentheses, a salute to sixties rock is actually the name of the song. You know, artists have been known to do that. You know, Sugar Ray had a record come out called 1459 saying mm -hmm. we've got one more second of fame left. Yeah. So it preempted, it was a preemptive strike and all the critics that were ready to destroy the record anyway. Yeah. So if the record sucked, we already knew it was going to be our last one. And if it was a hit, well, it was the best title ever. Luckily, it was the latter. So I think there was definitely that insight. Because by the way, it's the longest title any, anyway, then you're going to tag that on at the I end. Know, I That's know. That's why I've never really heard the title, you know? Mm -hmm. But definitely don't come at us. We know it's a three-card jammy. We're having some fun with it. And this is this is the origin. This is the inspiration of the tune, if you will. That's right. And what I like about you is a better song anyway. You can't just... Oh, without that, a oh, doubt. Oh, uh -huh. I'm curious to know, though, what I like about you come out in the late 70s, or I want to say it came out in like in 81 or 82. Yeah, I think I think we've been over this. It, that's an 80s. That's got to be an, an 80s song. Because what's crazy, Tully, is that that ROCK in USA might have come out two years after that. 80, it wasn't, you know 80, I mean? 85. So the Romantics is 80, and um, it's uh, 85 was the, the, the oh. big Mellon Camp album, Scarecrow. That's a substantial time because people have already cycled out of high school. So yeah, that's all a new thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, I, I I can't imagine too many people listened to this and did not make the connection if they were familiar at all with the song that I would argue most definitely inspired it. To me, this is every bit as similar as the two songs that we just uh, just enjoyed. Uh, here's another minor hit from Mellencamp.
you know where I'm going with this, obviously. Uh, Brad, but you could sing R O C K in USA over that. Too. Yeah, and <laughs> and what I like about you, if you're if you're really <laughs> in the mood to get down, it's the same thing. It's A D E again, man. Yeah, you know? yeah. Again, I say this a lot. Like, I'll give you the chords all day, man. Mm-hmm. Here they are. Okay. You don't have to be precious about, about music. How about if you give me the chords and you tell me that you wrote a song about fighting the law? And then you ask yeah, well, me to change go. it up a little bit and see if you can still get a hit song out of that. Can you do that, John Mellencamp? Yeah. <laughs> I break in the rocks in the hot sun. I fought the law in the law one. I fought the law in the law one. Three chords in the truth, Tully. You know, three chords in the truth. And yeah. Bobby Fuller's story is crazy. Anybody out there, go do Wikipedia on him. Mm-hmm. He died like, I think he died on on an apart, on a street up on uh, Hollywood Boulevard. I can't mm-hmm. remember the Fuller or something. And like, he was in an apartment like at 24 years old, 25. And I think the record had just come out and he got shot and yep. killed. And some, I don't know, what the hell? Do you know more? Do you know any more on that? Uh, you know what? I did Wikipedia that a while back. I've already forgotten what I found. Like, boy, if I could just get a chip in my brain to remember all the stuff of Wikipedia, I'd be the smartest man alive. Because I did look into that, and you know why I looked into that is because there is a band that is not for everybody that I enjoyed quite a bit when I was in high school. You will recall Black Forty Seven. Of course, yeah. Black Forty Seven had their big shot with their uh their I they were they were Rolling Stone called them the Irish E Street Band. That's all you need to know. That's what they were trying to do is be an Irish E Street Band and um, with a drum machine, and they made a really good record in my opinion. But it didn't it didn't work. And so the second record, I don't even know if they, I don't even still think they were on a, a major label. But one of the singles off of that is literally called "Who Killed Bobby Fuller." Oh shoot! I didn't even know that. It's a good little. It's a, yeah, it's a fun little song. Um, Boy, that's staying in the tradition of a, a, a narrative of a story that ended tragically of you know their of the Irish tradition. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna have to check that out now. But yeah, yeah, I think he was either in the wrong place at the wrong time or involved in some kind of chicanery yeah. that I don't know about. But it's a really tragic ending. Yeah, and it's a song that holds up. I I don't spend a whole lot of time with rock and roll from like 1961, but and and I think a lot of it you can more like appreciate than really enjoy, at least to my you know 80s 90s O's leaning ears. But like the Buddy Holly stuff, like I, I that that reminds me that's like a good Buddy Holly song. It's just actually good. I think it holds up really really well. So so well that John Mellencamp was able to have a virtual a hit with a virtual cover of it several decades later. That's right. If the Clash covers your song, right. you're in good space. That's you know right. what I mean. I also think back then in the 60s, too, rock and roll was so new and it wasn't as progressive as it was going to become. Like, you know, the psychedelic movement was just around the corner. So they were still working with the three chords, man, the Buddy Holly. I'm I'm talking late 50s, early into like 64, 65. So you were getting bands like the Beatles started experimenting, but you were getting bands like Herman's Hermits, um, Freddie and the Dreamers. They were still doing that three chord and the truth, not even the truth, uh, Sally, do you want to dance type stuff? Cause it just sounded pleasant and sounded great on AM radio, you know? Yeah. 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 And it was still that, that early stuff is um, just, you know, rock and roll is blues meets country. That's really what it is. And um, mm-hmm. it was a sweet era of country to be coming out of. And, and, and the, the country twang that's on that stuff was, uh, was never going to sound as good in rock and roll as it did circa 1960 or so. Exactly. Cause the twang and distortion, Though, tell that to Jason the Scorchers and yeah. maybe the Cramps, some other bands. It just didn't really attain the sweetness that it does when you're just running through a Gretsch 
and a beautiful Fender twin. You know? That's exactly right. Okay, I got one more of these, and uh, this is another hill that I will die on. Um, <laughs> I love a lot of hills you'd be dying on, it. <laughs> um, wait, where? Yeah, here we go. Okay, it's from the second. So Mariah Carey, obviously massive legend. You know, she could live like a queen simply on Christmas royalties nowadays, but there was a long period in the wilderness, and she hadn't had a hit in a while. And to me, this was, like, that's really how you make your Yourself, um, no, there's a lot of different ways to make yourself a legend, but to to reestablish yourself when you've been really gone for a few years is is it puts you on a in really really rarefied air. And to me, this song did that for her, not just as a legacy artist, but as a perennial hit making artist. Like, I don't Such know. Such a that. great song. I no. love that song. Did you like it when Jody Watley did it? <laughs> hold on, hold on. Probably not as much. <laughs> you probably didn't. No, she did nice things with this Jody Watley song, in my opinion. Belong wasn't in the first or second sentence in that. Would you really think there was an inspirational component to it? Are oh. you hearing more than just that? Yeah, no, this is the, I, to me, to me, she took the chorus and then just did a different thing on the end. And, and honestly, you are my everything. Neither of them is a great song. I don't want to listen to either of them personally, but you are my everything actually wraps up that melodic line far better than we belong together does in, to me, I think that she just added that wrinkle. Yeah. I, I think, and also, almost in her defense, she, where she was trying to keep up with the Joneses, this is Mariah I'm talking about, this is what people were doing, is is uh -huh. you were, hip-hop had made it, so you just took other people's songs and just did wrinkles on top of them. I just think that this is one where, uh, I'm, I'm positive Mariah Carey, knew that she was singing over the track to somebody else's big hit song. I, I'm oh, and she had done it before with Dream Lover. I think she did right. the Tom Tom Club, you know, Genius of Love. So it's not new to her arsenal or game, mm -hmm. you know, for sure. I've heard that this is this is totally anecdotal. I don't have any way of proving this, that she's settled lots and lots of stuff. I heard the Mariah Carey thing is like I just kind of take stuff and then I don't and I play dumb. And if they come to me, then I go, yeah, 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 sure, Corey, here you go. We, we cut you into that. But why would I go to them and say I'm sampling your song when some of them won't notice or some of them don't have a good lawyer to come after me? I, I, don't, yeah. know if, I don't know if that's true. I've heard that about her in general. It could be because sampling is a totally different matter. If you take someone's master and put yeah, it on sure. your song, you're never going to get away with that. No, of course. But if, you're, if you tweak a melody and do and sing it, then that's, uh, that's where that kind of that gray area happens. Uh, yeah, listen. Mariah Carey is the most successful female artist of the 90s. She had 14 number one songs, you know, uh, and she was a co-writer of all of them. Yes. So with that greatness might come a little bit of inspiration, uh, you know, stealing, if you will, allegedly. She's she's very, very talented. And uh, yeah, and I don't think she's ever gotten the credit she really deserves because people don't the the. um 
a, a great big Achilles heel of music listeners, even fairly informed ones, is that they don't account for for writing. And and yeah. you know she was always pitted against Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston never wrote a song in her entire life. Whitney uh, Mariah Carey writes songs all day, every day, um, and that's to me to me that is the difference. At this point, I would actually say. I remember Steven Tyler saying at some point around 2000 that he felt like they had finally measured up to, to uh, Led Zeppelin. Cause he's like, we were mm-hmm. never as big as we, as they were at the time, but they've been gone for so long and we've continued to do it at this point. I feel like they're our equivalent at this point. I actually put Mariah on top of Whitney, despite the fact that Whitney's peak, I would argue was, was just not more successful or more this or more that just like she was a legendary, legendary performer, um, a real, a real rare talent at her very, very peak. But Mariah has just been doing it for so long and, uh, and writing it, uh, writing her own stuff. All that having been said, I, to me, she's like the rock where the rocks, the biggest movie star in the world, but what's the signature role? What's where, where's his, where's his Terminator? Where's his, where's his Rocky or Rambo? You know, what's Mariah Carey's, what's the song that, 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 that will, that will carry on and be covered by other artists for another 30 years. I mean, that's, that's, that's really well put, you know, it's, uh, I mean, she's had obviously quite a few, um, yeah. but I, I, I don't know, but also there's not a lot of people that can, can sing in the rarefied air Mariah Carey, Sure, you know, you got Christina Aguilera. I mean, there's no generational voice. She was that generational voice of the, uh, of the early '90s, then Christina Aguilera came in. I mean, it, you know, it's not many people have that five octave vocal range, mm-hmm. so she always has that thing in her song. So good luck covering those. True. So it's almost unique where she cannot be covered. But I think where where Mariah might, what you know, look, both had colossal public failures, Whitney and Mariah. And Mariah was able to weather the storm a little bit. Remember that glitter period where she was just like sure. doing crazy things on TRL with Carson Daly. And it just, it just got a little sad. She was able to come back with that big song and get back up into that. Okay. A list. We belong together uh, status where, where she was, where unfortunately Whitney's story ended so tragically. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Well, that's what I've got. You know, people have pointed out to me, and this is not just a theory, the similarity between um, Since You've Been Gone by Kelly Clarkson and the song Maps by the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. And I'm pretty sure the guy who wrote Since You've Been Gone, who I think is Max Martin, literally said, I, I heard that song and was like, wow, I want one like that, and plotted out a song to sound so it's it's the rare instance where the artist is admitting it and i don't quite hear it so uh i i couldn't even really think of a of a bit to play for you to say see here's this and then here's that if people want a little fun homework you can look into the connection between two um great songs and seemingly unconnected songs but that's that is what i've got for you this week i gotta tell you though it totally went in that and there's a lot of songs that way be interesting another dive that like you start off going, okay, I want to do this. Let's mm-hmm. do a song like uh, Celebration by Kamal McCain. You know, all of a sudden, the way you start singing it and the tonality, and then you start taking a right, and all of a sudden, you end up with like, you know, uh, Sweet Child of Mine or something. It just happens all the time like that. Yeah. You know, because you go, let's write a song. But it's what Robin Thicke did with bur- Blurred Lines. Let's write a song like that Marvin Gaye song. Mm-hmm. And they did. Unfortunately, it was a little too close to the nose. Mm-hmm. But other than that, you know, it happens all the time like that. Yeah, because sometimes you're bereft for creativity. And you're on the clock and you need something. So you might pull out your records and go, let's do this, you know? So it happens. I don't get, I don't get those though. I I would never, 
two different songs to me. Yeah, me me too. Fun fun dumb fact: the big EMF, the band Unbelievable. You remember their one album was called? Do you recall? Um, like Frosty Shakes and something crazy. <laughs> it's I... Called called Schubert Dip. There it is. That was and, close. <laughs> and and supposedly the story is the guitar player said anytime he was stuck for a riff, he would go listen to Schubert and pull some music out of classical. Wow. And he said that so. That might be the longest bridge yeah. of uh, influence in the history of music. That's, that's what right? he said. Remember that guy, the shaved head guy with big nose? And, uh, and and yeah, he said he said anytime he, need, he was stuck for a song, he would take a, a Schubert dip. And that's why their album was, the one big album was called Schubert Dip. By the way, go listen to EMF live. They do it live. It's on YouTube. And it's like a Led Zeppelin song. It rocks. It, it's, it's it's amazing. We cover it in our Sugar Ray set because it's really fun and up-tempo. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's got it. Yeah, and no they do a live version like an MTV New Year's Eve thing, and it's just the guy's playing this Les Paul, and it's going. Bow, down, down, yeah, down, 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 he was a Les Paul ripping, guy, man. yeah. Yeah, and no. it's so energetic, and I'm like, wow. I go, let's cover this thing. And it's a huge part of our set when we play it. You know, that's fun. That's fun. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that because yeah, that song is due for. That's another one that was really big deal at the time. That's not forgotten, but has sort of lost its and, yeah, presence for a number one song. It certainly doesn't have the number one. Uh, recurrency you think it would you yeah, know that's right all right well, it's got dice clay sampled in it come on it does that's right that's it's right unbelievable they, that's right <laughs> and wasn't there a, a curse in there that isn't it isn't it he's just going what the fuck oh yeah it's what the fuck what the fuck oh yeah it literally saying that yeah all but, it's of, sound, but it sounds like what the what what the what oh but and, and the lyrics is what the fuck what the fuck? But they put in the lyrics as saying what the what. Oh, I see. But, like, but they snuck in a what the fuck. It's yeah, like, completely obvious when you listen to it. Like Extreme with Get the Funk Out and, uh, there you go. and Two Live Crew with The Funk Shop. I'm sure we all know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you as always for your time and for bearing with uh, technical difficulties. Um, we will uh, we will be in touch. Let's do some stuff. My soon. pleasure, Tully. 